great to be together. Love Easter. It's great to be with one another on Easter morning. It's great to look around and see uh, all ages and shapes and sizes and colors. We look like a bunch of Easter eggs as we look around in a good way, in a good way. Uh, you know, our little kids right now are, it's great having some of the older kids with us. Our little kids right now are getting a visit from the Easter Bunny in uh, Kids Kingdom. And don't worry, it's not a scary Easter Bunny. Uh, it's usually one of our, uh, our cute teen girls, you know. And, uh, but there, there have been some pretty scary Easter Bunnies out there. I just want to show you a few pictures of some I found. That's an old school Easter Bunny. Looks a little like... Uh, I don't know, that's scary. The kid, the kid doesn't look very scared. He looks a little maybe demented, but not scared. <laughs> that one looks like an alien. Doesn't it look like an alien? But the kids are fine. That one looks really weird. That one's kind of alienish as well. That one's just wrong. That looks kind of homemade. There's a lot of low end on this guy. Oh, it's like a, a, like a storm is coming. Okay, this one looks like something from Star Wars a little bit, doesn't it? Look like Chewbacca. This one, that's another just creepy one. It's like, it's like a... It's like if Nightmare Before Christmas, you know, this is Nightmare Before Halloween, or, I mean, Nightmare Before Easter or something, kind of brought in Easter. This one, I like the kid on this one. The Easter Bunny's just smiling with those Easter Bunny teeth, but the kid is like, I want out of here. This one I like, I like because the, the kid seems fine, but the there's a real evil grin on that Easter bunny, isn't it? That is just an evil grin. That one's another just... <laughs> I suppose that one's not as much scary as it is ugly. It's just an ugly Easter bunny. That one's really ugly, too. I gotta move through these here. That one... I like that one because it looks like the Easter Bunny is trying to eat the children. That one's, his hands don't really fit. You know, he's got these big hands there. This is my favorite. It's the homemade Easter Bunny outfit. Can you see the top is like a, a sweatshirt? The ears are made out of sweatshirts. <laughs> And the kid is just like, please, no. Looks like he has onions sticking out of his, his, his nose or something. I <laughs> it's just all kinds of wrong. And that's the title of our lesson today, I Was Wrong. Kind of an odd title for Easter, but stay with me. We're going uh, to talk about this a little bit here. I Was Wrong. How many of you enjoy being wrong about something? We all hate being wrong, don't we? I know for me, if I'm wrong about something, it's almost like I want to go back in time and change my opinion beforehand. You know, like, especially if you're really strong about your opinion and then you've, you're discovered to be wrong, that's, that's tough. You know, we don't like that. And there's been many times in my marriage I've been wrong. I've had to say, honey, I'm sorry. You were right. I was wrong. Uh, you know, many, many times. Uh, how many of us have experienced that feeling of, 
Oh, I was wrong. I thought this was the men's restroom. <laughs> okay? I thought this was the women's restroom. Ah, yikes. Uh, I was wrong. I should have bought an extended warranty. It's too late. Uh, I was wrong. I took the wrong freeway. That's happened to me so many times. Like, I think the freeway is going that way, and then it ends up going that way, and it adds another 10 minutes to my trip. One time we were on vacation. We, we, we had been on vacation in Colorado. We made it to the airport. We've got three little kids. You know how it is when you are flying. It's already a hassle, but flying with three little kids, two little ones and a baby, it's a nightmare. You know, you get them all together and everything, get up super early. We get it to the airport. We arrive. We're ready to check in, and the, the, they say, oh, your flight was yesterday. <laughs> and there's just that feeling, you know, five plane tickets, reschedule fee. You know, like, oh, I was wrong. I hate being wrong. Sometimes being wrong is not as bad. Uh, like, when, I, when we first moved here, we've been here about 20 years. My wife and I, we grew up in Colorado. But we used to keep hearing about this place called Trader Joe's when we moved here. And Trader Joe's just kind of, to me, it sounded like this kind of uppity, snobbish place. I don't know. Just people would talk about, oh, I got it at Trader Joe's. It was really good. You know, it just sounded like snobby and expensive. I like cheap. I like quantity. You know, I like, I like a good buy. And so I was like, best, you know, I kind of, I would see the signs, Trader Joe's. Oh, no, that, that's expensive. That's snobby stuff. And then finally, after years being here, I went into Trader Joe's. I'm like, this place is awesome. I was so wrong about this. So sometimes being wrong can actually be fine. You know, it can be a good experience like I had with Trader Joe's. But wherever, maybe you are, are unwilling to admit when you're wrong. Uh, I'm going to date myself by this video here a little bit, but watch this video. Some of you guys will connect with this video. I was not exactly right. He's unwilling to say I was wrong. Maybe that's you. We're going to talk about being wrong about Jesus today. There's a lot of people through history that have been wrong about Jesus. And uh, so many people, everybody agrees that he existed. Everybody agrees that he was an actual historical figure. You know, because besides the Bible, there's all these other historical references. There's more historical documentation for the person of Jesus than any other figure in history. And all of history has been changed by Jesus. Our calendar, you know, is based on this one individual. So everybody believes he existed. But it's, it's, it's what is the truth about who he was? Was he a prophet? Was he a good teacher? Was he a madman? Was he the son of God? You know, what is the truth about Jesus? And there's a lot of people that have a lot of opinions about who Jesus was. And it was the same back in his time. At one point, he, he asked his followers, what are people saying about me? And they said all the, they say all these different things. And then he said to them, what about you, Matthew 16? Who do you say I am? And that's an important question to evaluate. Uh, evaluating what you believe about Jesus is a really, really important question. Because like I said, all of history hangs on this one individual. So it's not a wise idea to go, well, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know. He was, maybe he was this, maybe he was that. Yeah, everybody kind of likes some of the things he had to say. But we're here today because we believe he was actually the Son of God and that he actually rose from the dead. And that's why his followers for the last 2,000 years have been gathering every Sunday. I don't know if you knew that. That's why people go to church on Sunday, because that was the day of the week that they saw the empty tomb. 
So 2,000 years of history support the fact that the tomb was empty. And, and Easter, today, what we celebrate is especially that particular Sunday after Passover. That's the Sunday when he died, was buried, and then he was, the tomb was empty and he rose from the dead. So that's what we believe. Now, you don't have to decide right now what you believe about that, but it is something you ought to investigate. What do you really believe about Jesus? You know, there were people back in, in his day that thought all kinds of different things about him. And there's a couple prominent people that were wrong about Jesus and then changed their opinion. One of them was Paul. Paul was a, a leading uh, religious guy in his community. And he, was a, he, was, he, he was, came from a, a well-known you know, family. He, he was trained by the very top-notch teacher in all of Israel. It would be like somebody who went to Harvard you know, in our time. Like, that's a pretty prestigious school. I'm not saying Harvard's the best school, so stay with me if you like another school. But I'm just saying it's that kind of feeling that Paul had. He was a top-notch guy. And he made a career out of not believing Jesus was the Son of God and not believing that he rose from the dead. So it'd be like a guy today who their whole career, you know, you see him on the talk shows and they go on the Daily Show and they, you know, and they write books and their whole career is based on the fact that they don't believe the Bible's true or they don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. That's kind of where Paul was. And yet he totally changed because he had an encounter with the risen Lord. And not, not only did he change his view, he became the leading figure in starting churches. And it, he said that, that understanding I was wrong motivated me to work harder than anybody else. And so he planted all these churches and he wrote all these letters and we're still benefiting from the work that he did because he changed his opinion. And this is what he wrote in one of his letters to a church in Corinth, which was a Greek city back then. He says this, and, and what this is, what scholars believe is this section of, of scripture is a creed that he's quoting. And this is very early. This is a creed that's from within three to five years of Jesus's actual resurrection. So it's, it's not like the resurrection was made up and, and kind of came into to, to being, being, being circulated way later. This, this, section of, this section of scripture is dated from within about five years of Jesus's resurrection. We'll talk more about that. But he says this, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's another name for Peter, that's his actual name, then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. So these are witnesses that are credible, they're still alive, you can go and ask them. Then he appeared to James, verse 7, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me. So that's Paul. We're not going to look at Paul today, but we're going to look at somebody he mentions here, and that is James. We're going to look at James. And if you turn with me over to Mark 3 in your Bible or your phone or whatever you've got there, I'm going to put some stuff on the screen, but it'd be good if you turn there as well, because we're, we're going to dig in. We might look at a couple verses that are on the screen. And before we, uh, before we open the Bible, let's pray. God, thank you to be able to be here this morning. Thank you to be able to worship you and sing about you and praise you in song. Thank you for uh, all that you are and all that you do and all that you mean to us. And thank you for Jesus and how we can know you through him and that we can know him through those that wrote about him and those that experienced him and those that witnessed his resurrection. Uh, I pray that you'd be with us as we open your word right now, that uh, you would speak to us, that your Holy Spirit would, would speak to each one of us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, a little background, be turning to Mark 3, a little background about uh, James, before we dig into the verses here, James was the physical brother of Jesus. We believe he was his half-brother because Jesus was born of a virgin. Uh, so James grew up with Jesus. 
And just think about yourself for a second. What would it take for your brother to convince you he was the son of God? So James didn't believe in Jesus. So even though he grew up with Jesus, the son of God, he didn't believe in him. So he was not counted among his followers. He was not one of his disciples. He was not there uh, at the, res- you know, at the, at the resurrect- first resurrection viewings. He was not there uh, in the Last Supper. He was not there when Jesus... You know, he was not there because he didn't believe in Jesus. He was not one of his followers. But something changed. That last verse says, Jesus appeared to James. And what happened is, after the resurrection, James becomes one of the most prominent of the early leaders of the Christian church. He becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, the book of Galatians and the book of James are the two earliest books in the Bible, in the New Testament. They were written first after Jesus. And James is a book that James, the brother of Jesus, wrote. And, uh, and Galatians is a book, book that Paul wrote, the other skeptic we were talking about. And he refers to James as the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And he talks about going and meeting with them. And there was a council and, and that's recorded in Acts 15 where James is kind of the guy that steps forward. So he, he becomes the leader of this, of this movement there in Jerusalem after being a total skeptic. So I thought this would be helpful to kind of look at a little background about James. And, and let's look in the Bible at him. So here's one of the first references to him. It talks about his brothers. And in Mark chapter 3, everybody there? Give me an amen if you're there. I know I've given you a couple of warnings and I'm not there myself. Okay. So Mark, Mark chapter 3 in verse uh, 20. It says, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. For they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law came down from Jerusalem and said, He's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. So again, there's all these different opinions about Jesus. Even back then, the religious leaders, they, believe, they, they are willing to uh, concede the fact that he does these miracles, but they say the only reason he can do miracles is because the spiritual forces of darkness are working through him. He's possessed by a demon. And his own family doesn't believe in him. Here they say he's out of his mind. They went to take charge of him. They thought he was crazy. And so, a little bit farther, he has some interaction with them a little bit farther, verse 30, 31. So his brothers, Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, so that includes James. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister, and mother. Now, his family, were they wrong-intentioned? No, I mean, they, they, they wanted to help him. They loved, I'm sure they loved him. He's their brother, he's their, he's their son. They care about him. He's not even able to eat because he's kind of running his life ragged. You know, I'm sure the moms can relate to that if you've got a teenager or you've got an older son. I know my mom worries about me all the time because I don't get enough sleep and I don't, you know, take care of myself and She's always praying. You know, the way she says it is, I'm praying for you guys. (laughs) But I know it's like, I'm trying not to worry about you guys is what she's... And so they they just, they were concerned about him. It was well-intentioned. But they were wrong. They were well-intentioned, but they were wrong. They, they, They had good motivation, but they didn't understand what he was doing. He had a spiritual reality. He says, around me, these are my mother and my brothers. In other words... There's something different happening. There's something new happening. There's a deeper spiritual reality happening. Uh, How can this relate to us? I think there are times we think God's way is crazy. There are times we think 
Some of this stuff in the Bible sounds crazy. Somebody raising from the dead physically, if you ask people, that sounds crazy. That doesn't sound logical. That doesn't sound rational. That doesn't sound reasonable on its face. And if you feel that way about Jesus today, if you think, that sounds crazy, that's all right. A lot of us felt that way about it for a long time. A lot of Jesus' followers, his own disciples who followed him for three years didn't even believe at first. Like this verse is in the Bible, Luke 24. The women go and they, they come back and the tomb is empty and it says, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. As the teens would say, they were cray-cray. <laughs> they thought they were cray-cray. This is nuts. Somebody raising from the dead, that's crazy. Sometimes it can seem like crazy, but... But the central point of, of our faith is that Jesus really did raise from the dead. And there's a lot of things that sound crazy on their face. There's a lot of things about science that sound crazy when you first hear them. You know, I love listening to science podcasts and reading science books. And there's stuff I read that, the only reason I read this stuff is because it blows my mind. Because it's so crazy. And that's all right. The, the point is to keep investigating. To go a little further. Dig a little deeper. I'm not saying you have to become a follower of Jesus today, but I'm saying you ought to investigate this. You ought to look into it a little further, even if it might sound a little crazy. Because there is a different mindset. His family has this mindset, and Jesus has this mindset. And if you've been around a while, if you've been a follower of Jesus a while, you've experienced that in interactions with people. Where they, you, you feel like, oh, they think I'm crazy. And that can be a little disconcerting. You don't want, nobody wants to be crazy. I don't want to be, think people think I'm crazy, right? Do you? But that's just the way it is sometimes. I remember when I was first uh, about to get married, we moved here from Colorado. I was working as a waiter down in the, at the Hyatt in Long Beach. And uh, I remember talking with this guy about how I was about to get married. And we were talking about my dating relationship. And Dustin and I had been dating about three years at the time. And somehow we were talking about our physical relationship and how we were not intimately physical. We were waiting until we got married, even though we'd been dating for three years. And I was sharing with him kind of vulnerably, you know, it's, it's hard. I could not do this. If it wasn't for the Bible, if it wasn't for her convictions and, and convictions of the, the, my brothers and sisters around me. This is not like something I want to do. This is hard. But uh, this is what we've decided. This is what we believe is right. We're trying to base our relationship on, relation, on God and on our friendship. And so we're saving this for till we get married. And he thought I was crazy. He was like, that is crazy. Why would you not... Why would you, not, if you're going you're gonna to make a commitment to this person, why would you not make sure you, that part works? Why would you not try that part out? Why would you not test drive the car? You ever heard that before? And, and, and he, he just thought I was out of my mind. And yet now, looking back, 21 years of marriage, I would not change a thing. It was not easy. But it's not like, oh man, I wish we would have messed around when we were dating. That would have been better. Do you know what I mean? That's never once gone through my mind. Because I've had 21 years of awesome marriage. Now, I mean, we have ups and downs or whatever. But our relationship is based on friendship and it's based on God. And that, you know what? That's good even in marriage. That it's not based on sex. And that's, you know, anyway, I'm not going to talk too much about that. I'm going to get the young kids here. But <laughs> sex is good. It's from God. It's created for marriage. And it's awesome. But you've got to do it God's way, even though it seems crazy sometimes. It might seem a little crazy. All right, let's look at another story. John 7. Turn with me over to John 7. This is another story about Jesus' brother, James. And brothers. They, they all kind of ganged up on him, it sounds like. He's 
Give me an amen if you're there. All right, John, John 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore Jesus told them, My time is not yet here. For you any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. And then it goes on. uh, At the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus, asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. Again, it's the same thing as nowadays. People are saying all kinds of things about Jesus. But do they really know? Uh, You know, again, were were his brothers well-intentioned? Do you think? I think so. I mean, I think they honestly were like, hey, you got this little Messiah thing going, you know? Here's what you ought to do. Yeah, you ought to, you know, your marketing strategy is horrible. You're kind of hanging out here in Galilee. Nobody who wants to be any public figure stays here in Galilee. This is like nowhere. You ought to go to the festival. You ought to show, I know you could do some of these kind of tricks that you do. They're pretty cool, you know? You got your guys that follow you around and you do the tricks. Why don't you go do that in Jerusalem? Because anybody who wants to become a, a big, big name, they, you know, this is what they do. And it's kind of like that advice that people give you, you know. I, I, I'm a, a musician. I've been an aspiring musician for a long time. And I've given up the idea of being a rock star because I'm 42 now. And it's just too old. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, people will give you advice like, oh, well, you ought you to get your songs on the radio. Oh, okay, great. I'll, I'll do that. No, no, more, no worries. That's easy to do. So, you know, they're, they're just kind of giving a little piece of advice. Here's what you ought to do. This is, this is what people do. This is how it works. Jesus, let me tell you how it works. Here's how it works. Here's what I've experienced. Here's how it works. And sometimes we're like this too. There are times we try to tell God how to do things. You know, we've seen all this stuff. We've experienced all this stuff. We know how it ought to go. Here's how God should be. Here's how the church should be. You know, people have all these opinions. If you want to find opinionated people just and get into you know strong opinions just talk about god talk about jesus people have these strong opinions it's so interesting that so often people have not investigated it they repeat something they heard on the radio or on some youtube video or that they heard in church but so few people have really read the bible really read what jesus said really investigated what he said and and, you know what's interesting the more you dig into it the more you're a little bit hesitant to 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 be like all puffed up with what you know like you know what i mean like i've been reading the bible a lot for 20 years i mean i've read it all the way through many 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 times and i'm hesitant to be like take i mean i'm kind of like a little fearful like yeah i think this is right this is what i've seen this is what i've read you know what i'm saying but sometimes people have never read the bible like oh yeah this is how it is oh yeah yeah it's totally like this you know what i'm talking about and it's, it's just based on their own ideas. It's just based on their own ex- worldly experiences. But what is that really? I mean, all that we have, all that we know is just what we've received from other people, from other sources. And we kind of put that together with our own experiences and we decide what we believe about stuff. And that's true of a lot of things. We just kind of take whatever it is and we add it to what we've experienced and we go, okay, is this right or is this wrong? 
and, and that's, that's the same way Christianity works. It's, Paul said, what I received, I passed on to you. It was this creed that he received that he passed on. But it was truth and it was validated. So I'm just trying to make you wrestle a little bit about with what do you really believe about God? What do you really believe about Jesus? And what's it really based on? Because sometimes we can try to tell God how to do things. You know, if God really is the creator of the universe, if he really did set in motion all of this, this, you know, this big bang that exploded and all, everything was created at one instant and it's all expanding universe, if he really did make that and he did set... And, and the, dig, the further they dig, the more order they find and the more uh, amazing laws they find, the more fine-tuned the universe is, they, they can't explain why it's so fine-tuned. It's like the more we look, the more we... It seems like it was designed for humans to live here. Well, duh, right? But the more we look, and they, they, the, the scientists even have a, a, a name for this. It's called the anthropic principle. What it means is the more you look, the more you dig, the more you look at the laws of nature, the more they all appear to be fine-tuned for humans to exist, for there to become a mind, for there, everything led up to there being a mind. Well, if that's really true, if God made all that, then he can do whatever he wants. He could be whatever kind of God he wanted to be. He could take pleasure in, in, in hurting us if he wanted that's his prerogative. He's God, right? I'm personally grateful he's not like that. He's compassionate and loving and great. And he loved us so much he became one of us. And he was hungry and he was tired and he was thirsty. And he went through every temptation we experienced. And he gave his life on the cross without ever sinning. That's the kind of God that we have. I'm so grateful we get to have that kind of God. And yet people are always like, oh, well, how could a loving God do this? And how could a loving God do this? And what about pain and suffering? And what about hell? And I mean, there are a lot of good questions, but my point is God can be whoever God wants to be. It doesn't matter what I think about it. It's, it's who he is. It's, I, I need to discover what is the real truth about God, not who is the God I want to exist. Because I could be wrong. Are you with me there? Just as an example, uh, let's talk about this idea for a second. Up and down. I don't know if you remember when you first discovered there is really no up and down, probably in grade school or something. You know, because from a little early age, that's one of the first things little kids learn. Up, down, up, down. You know, little kids, mommy, up, down. But then you get into school and you start to study and you start to realize there is really no up and down. Do you guys, uh, hopefully you know that. I'm getting a lot of blank stares. <laughs> there is no up and down. There is gravity. There is a big circular... Th- I don't know if you knew this, but North America is not at the top. There is no up and down. There's gravity. If I throw something up, the Earth's gravity pulls it back because it's so, it has so much mass. But there is really no up and there is really no down. Okay, you tracking now? We might have to go back to science class. But that's a truth. That's a truth that we accept because we heard in school and we... You know, we've never experienced that. I've never been to space. Have you? You know, I've never been, I've seen a lot of pictures of space. There could be some vast conspiracy and really the world is flat and really, you know, the the stars are just on a a big kind of sphere like like the ancients believed. They believed that all the stars were just points of light kind of like the ceiling. Just way up there though. Uh, That could be true. I haven't experienced it myself. I've been in a plane. I've kind of seen the curvature of the earth, but it could be... My point is that we accept all kinds of things that are kind of crazy because they come with validation, because they come from expert witnesses, because they come from people who have seen it, who have experienced it. 
And so then we change our point of view. We go, I was wrong. There is really no up and down, even though I feel like there is. And so we change. We go, I was wrong. I need to change my viewpoint. And, and that's what a lot of these early disciples did about Jesus because they weren't sure what to believe. And then he, they realized he actually rose from the dead and it changed their whole worldview. Uh, and so the, the one point I want to mention today is that one point I want you to take away is that uh, the resurrection demands investigation. The resurrection demands investigation. Because something made uh, James change. James was a skeptic. He didn't believe in Jesus, and yet he became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He became a guy that gave his life for the cause. In the beginning of the book of James, he calls Jesus his Lord. He never says, oh yeah, I'm the brother of Jesus and blah, blah, blah. He says, I'm the servant of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, James 1, 1. His whole perspective changed. And so something, you know, people will sometimes uh, get a belief that, that they want to exist. Like, I, I, want you to, I want you to be a loving person, so I'm going to believe you're a loving person. And I'm going to believe it so hard that I start to see you that way because I want that. That's different than someone who believes the opposite and then changes their viewpoint. That, that takes a, a lot more. For somebody to cha- who is a total skeptic to change their viewpoint like Paul did or like James did. We're going to watch a 10-minute video right now that gives you a little bit of the evidence of, of uh, the resurrection. And this is taken from a movie. It's a documentary called The Case for Christ. It's, a great, it's about an hour and a half long. It's a great documentary. We're just going to watch a 10-minute segment. And it goes into all these evidences for why you can trust the writings that are collected together that we know as the Bible. Why you can trust those writings. Why you can trust that Jesus was a unique individual and fulfilled all these prophecies in the Old Testament of the scriptures. And this part is going to talk a little bit about the resurrection. Uh, it's based on a book of the same title you may have read by Lee Strobel. It's a great, great book. So we're going we're gonna to look at this video and then I'm going to have a few more comments. Crucifixion 
enormous ramifications. This is how the story was, and they didn't change it um, to airbrush Mary out, then this really must have been what happened on that first Easter day. The chief priest devised a plan. They gave the soldiers a large sum of money to tell them, you are saying his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. Matthew 28, 12 and 13. Matthew reports that the Jewish authorities were claiming that the disciples of Jesus had stolen his corpse. And this is verified by Justin and Tertullian a little bit later on, saying that the Jewish leaders were still saying the same thing in their day. And here's the question. If the body is still in the tomb, why are you saying that the disciples had stolen it? Well, we think about that. The claim that the body was stolen confirms that Jesus' enemies acknowledged that the tomb was empty. If you've got a stolen body, you must have an empty tomb. If the tomb was not empty, Jesus' opponents would surely have gone and got the body and shown it as soon as the disciples began proclaiming the resurrection. I found the evidence for the empty tomb very convincing, but you know what? That didn't tell me what happened to Jesus. Is it true that hundreds of people really saw him alive after the crucifixion? My research took me to a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, and it contains the earliest passage of all about what happened to the resurrected Jesus. He was raised on the third day. He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. Then he appeared to James and to all of the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me. 1 Corinthians 15, 4 and 8. Paul, who is a first-generation Christian and met and seen the resurrected Jesus, describes resurrection appearances to Peter, to the apostles, to James, and finally to himself. And he also mentions 500 people who saw Jesus alive. So we have eyewitness first-hand account uh, of someone who himself saw Jesus alive and knows of 500 people or so who saw Jesus alive. That's extraordinarily strong evidence. These people, Paul tells us, were still alive at the time that he was telling the Corinthians about it. And the implication is we have hundreds of people who actually saw Jesus risen from the dead. If you don't believe me, you can ask them about it because they're still alive. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells the Corinthians that he passed on what he received. The language actually of a formal transfer of tradition. What he received, and then he describes the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of appearances. This confirms for us that the accounts of the resurrection were creedal tradition that were passed on to Paul. So if 1 Corinthians was written in the early 1850s of the first century, these traditions were much earlier than that, um, going back to the period of Paul's conversion. In so that pushes the accounts of the resurrection to a very, very early day. Paul seems to think that the best argument for this text is that he received it from trustworthy persons. I gave you what I was given. 
7 provides evidence that belief in the resurrection was already present among Jews within two to three years after Jesus was killed. That means that the resurrection stories aren't something that evolved over 30, 40, 50 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. So here's, here's the thing is, I just encourage you to investigate this. You know, he goes, the, the video, you can bring the house lights back up. The video uh, goes into some detail about the resurrection accounts you might not be familiar with. Like Joseph, uh, the rich man who, who he was buried in the tomb. And, and Mary Magdalene was the first one that saw him. And some of these details that you might not be familiar with. Hopefully, though, that piqued your interest a little bit. Like, wow, maybe there is some truth to this. And I'm just encouraging you to investigate it further. If you, if you don't know what you believe about this. If you believe in Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is stuff you should know. This, is, this should be our testimony to the lost world. Jesus is Lord, and he really did raise from the dead. It's interesting, because if you look at the book of Acts, which is the, the, the next book that follows the Gospels, every one of the sermons recorded in Acts, that's the, that's the message. Jesus is the Messiah. Why? Because he rose from the dead. You killed him, but he rose again. God raised him from the dead. Every one of the sermons in Acts, there's a reason for that, because that's what our faith is based on. We live in a very postmodern world where it's kind of like everything is acceptable. It doesn't matter. The only thing that you can't be is judgmental. That's the only thing wrong. The only bad thing is to pass judgment on anything. Besides that, everything is good. That's kind of our society. Like what's true for you or what's true for me or what's true over here, what's true over there, what's true up there, what's true down here. But there is absolute truth. Just like there's absolute truth about the universe, there's absolute truth about gravity, there is an absolute truth about Jesus, who Jesus was. Either he rose physically from the dead or he didn't. They can't both be true. And so you got to investigate that stuff. And if you're a disciple of Jesus, we need to know that stuff. And that should be our message because the Bible says, be prepared to give an answer for what you believe. You know, all of the early Christians, this transformed them. Like I said, James said this, he was a servant. He's a Lord of the Lord Jesus Christ. He went from being a skeptic, thought, thought God was crazy, thought he should tell him how to do things to, no, I'm a servant. He's Lord. And that's the same transformation all the early Christians had. Uh, I want to read an account of how James died, uh, so we know kind of the end of the story. And then we're going to hear a real-life modern story. Steve and Jackie Marici are going to come up and tell a little bit about what the resurrection means in their life. And we can put a little bit of modern flesh and, and, and bone on, on the idea of how does the resurrection, what does it mean for me and for my life? So listen to this. This is how James died. 62 AD, and James the just, the brother of Jesus, stands atop the parapet of the temple. Festus, the Roman provincial governor, has just died, and his replacement, Albinus, is yet to arrive in Jerusalem to restore order. The Jewish Sanhedrin sees this opportune time to strike against its enemies. As James is forced to stand on this dangerous ledge overlooking the crowded courtyard below, the Jewish leaders say, We call on you to restrain the people, since they've gone astray after Jesus, believing him to be the Christ. We call on you to persuade all who come for the Passover concerning Jesus, since all of us trust you, O righteous one whom we all ought to believe. Since the people are going astray after Jesus who was crucified, tell us, what does the door of Jesus mean? He replied with a loud voice, Why do you ask me about the Son of Man? He is sitting in heaven at the right hand of the great power, and he will come on the clouds of heaven. So they threw down the righteous one. Then they said to each other, let's stone James. And they began to stone him since the fall had not killed him. 
Then one of them, a laundryman, took the club he used to beat out clothes, and he hit James on the head. Such is his martyrdom. This was recorded by Eusebius in the late 200s. And so I don't know if that's true or not. It's not, you know, uh, in the scriptures, but it's, it's an account. It's an early account, early 200s of how Jesus died. So we can most, I mean, how James died. So we can most likely believe it's, it's got some truth in it. But the, the fact is that he went from being a skeptic to being willing to give his very life because he, he believed in Jesus and he saw Jesus. And he said he is now in heaven reigning. It transformed his life. So the, the, the resurrection demands investigation. I hope you take a step forward in some way to find out more about who Jesus was. And uh, Steve and Jackie are going to come up now and share a little bit.